Yeah, so, you know, sometimes, uh, you may not know, your pastor goes to another church. Sometimes I sneak off to Federal Way to a church down there on a Saturday night to their service just to be refreshed and, um, and not preach and uh, not have to set up anything just to show up and be part of a worship service, and it's really refreshing. And um, sometimes, you, it's amazing to me, like, my hope for you this morning is that you feel as refreshed here on Sunday morning as I felt last night at, uh, at that church. And, it, and it's such an, the environment that they create there in their worship is so good and so freeing. And then, you know, the littlest thing can, can just totally undo that, right? Um, they, were, they had all these volunteers come up to the front of the room and they, wanted to go, they went down the line with a handheld mic and just say, tell us your name and what ministry you volunteer with here in the church. Tell us your name, what ministry you volunteer with at the church. What do, you, what do you do, you know, as a volunteer? And it was going so smooth. I mean, like, you have 25 people up there and you just expect somebody's going to be the talker, right? Somebody's going to have to give you like a 15-minute explanation of what they, it didn't happen. It was going so smooth down the line, so-and-so, and this is so I work with this ministry, so-and-so, I work with uh, uh, um, women who've been abused, so-and-so, and it's, it got, we're almost home free, we're almost to the end of the line, second to the last guy, who looked like an articulate fellow, to be fair, um, and, the, and the pastor got to him with the microphone and said, tell us who you are and what you do in ministry here in the church, he said, I mean, there's this long pause, how am I going, how do I say this, how do I explain this? I'm the guy that does the sex thing with all the men in the church. What he meant to say was, I'm the guy that helps the men in the church with sexual addiction. But that's not what he said. And I just, I was just in the floor. Just do exactly what many of you are doing. I'm just like, mm-hmm. Can we? And he had the thing. He had the whole time to think about what he was going to say, and he still. I'm like. So sometimes, like the the like the most intentional worship environment can be undone in a moment of carelessness or just you know not. It's just funny to me. It's so funny. Um, church is a strange thing. Church is a, if you've been around here at all for any amount of time, you know that that's true. Church is a strange thing. I, I had a, another insight about church recently. I went to see a movie. I, I don't normally do this. I don't normally, you know, go, man, I'm just going to go see a movie and I'm looking for parallels. I want to figure out how do I spiritualize this entertainment and make it applicable for church. But it, it was just so, it was so in my face. I went to saw The Greatest Showman. You seen The Greatest Showman? Anybody? Um, I'm a, I, I grew up doing, uh, oh, I grew up in musical theater, Right, so I've, I have a degree in voice performance, and I've done opera, and I've done musicals, and many of you didn't know that, and now you're going really. Um, but I went and saw The Greatest Showman with my wife, so I was way on a retreat, and Jen and Abby went and saw it, and then when I got back, there was all they wanted to talk about that whole week, and they were playing the soundtrack in the house all the time, and I'm just like, what is this? And and then John came to me, and was like, oh man, I. I hate musicals, and my wife tricked me into going to see this, but it was awesome, and you've got to go see it. And so I'm like, okay, all right, okay, okay, all right, I'll go watch it. And, I, you know, I, so we, we go to see it, and we go to Linwood, and we're sitting in the theater, and I like Hugh Jackman anyway. I mean, musicals on film are hit and miss. Some of them translate well, some of them do not translate well. Les Mis, it's hard to take 
a book that size and make it into a movie anyway, but then to make it into a musical, to make that work was hard. Hugh Jackman did an amazing job. Uh, Russell Crowe's voice I'm not thrilled about, but Hugh Jackman, amazing, right? And, and so here's this, here's this movie about P.T. Barnum and how the circus got started. And it was astounding to me to, to just sit there, and there were moments where I actually wept, and I'll, I'll come back to this at the end of the sermon, but the story is actually a story about the church. Because all these outcasts who had no place in proper society were gathered together in one place, and they found a home with each other. And, then, and they were awakened to that reality that this is our home, this is where we belong. And then the guy who'd been exploiting them realized wait, I I belong here with these people too. This is my home too. I can't let all these other pursuits get in the way of caring for these people. It it was really powerful. I I won't spoil it for you, but I think the the thing that was most compelling about the the movie for me was the story of redemption and redirection. How a person could be thinking that they're pursuing one thing and it's a good thing and it's their life goal and this is what I'm gonna give my whole self to and then suddenly they're going in the exact opposite direction. And God can just do that. He can just do that. Um, And the commonality of the people in that experience. That's what the church is. The church is, the the key to gospel community is our commonality. And so look around the room, right? We're just, I was in Federal Way last night, huge Russian population, a large Hispanic population, um, African-American population. Their church down there is very diverse ethnically. We are not. We are very homogenous. But that doesn't mean that we're not diverse, right? Well, you just get, start digging into the lives of people right around this, this room. You will find stories that are so different from one another. This is a very diverse space. But the commonality that we share is not our life experience. It's not our ethnicity, although I think we, most of us share that. Um, it's, not, it's not all these external things that the world values. The commonality that we share is Jesus Christ and him crucified, his grace poured out into our lives, our hearts regenerated and brought to life by the goodness and grace and love of our God. And so this is what church is. This is what we're called to be. Um, Our right standing with God through faith in Christ being the only grounds for our full acceptance of not just acceptance into the presence of God, but acceptance of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. How we base our relationships And if we find ourselves thinking and behaving as if other people's union with Christ is somehow insufficient for fellowship, if we look at the other people in the church and go, I really don't want to hang out with that person, or as Paul would say to the Corinthian church, like you you would say to that person over there, we don't need you. You're You're not as cool as we are. You don't belong here. He says, you've missed the point of the gospel. You've missed the point of the gospel. The pinky toe can't say to the left hand, I don't need you. And the, and the eye, Paul would say in Corinthians, I can't say to the pinky toe, I don't need you. I mean, just stub your pinky toe in the middle of the night. Life is over. <laughs> you think that that's dispensable? Your life just stopped, right? You need all these parts for the whole body. And that's the point of Paul in 1 Corinthians. When we, when we think and behave like we don't need each other, that, that that person's relationship with Jesus is somehow not sufficient to bring them into fellowship with the body, then it's we who are denying the power of the gospel. All that was to get us to Isaiah. 
You know, we're in this series running up to Easter. I realized this week that what I've done with this series is all about Jesus is that instead of preaching one Easter sermon, I will preach five Easter sermons because every one of these sermons through the month of March could be an Easter sermon. It's on an Easter text. And I realized I've just preached Easter five times. Next year's going to be really hard because I won't have any material because I <laughs> preached it all. And I'm like, how do you reinvent Easter? I, I don't know. So this, this is, uh, this, I, want, I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13, and then we'll read over into chapter 53, and that chapter only has 12 verses. So we're going to take that whole chunk, 52, 13, all the way to the end of 53. And this is the passage, I didn't bring the video clip in this, this week, but YouTube, uh, uh, what's it called? There's a, there's a video, these, these guys in Israel who are um, converted Jews, it's the hidden, what does what he call it? Um, the forbidden chapter, the forbidden chapter, just YouTube the forbidden chapter. And you will see these guys talk to Jewish people on the street and have them read directly out of a Hebrew Bible from Isaiah 53 and go, who is this describing? What is happening here? And these secular Jews in Israel are going, it sounds like Mashiach. It sounds like he's suffering for the sins of mankind. It sounds like he died for, in our place. It is so cool to watch this video, just to watch these people awaken to the reality of what the text says. So let's look at Isaiah 52, and we'll just take it a verse or two at a time as we unpack this together. Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So that, that phrase, lifted up, Jesus predicted that about himself in John chapter three. He's having the conversation with Nicodemus who had come to him at night because he was a little embarrassed about that connection. He wasn't sure about Jesus. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus yet. And so he comes to him at night and in the midst of the conversation, Jesus says, uh, when the son of man be lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. And that's an allusion to, a reference to Numbers 21 which is uh, uh, an episode in the history of Israel when they're in their exodus wandering and they have begun to complain again about God's provision for them. And so as punishment for their complaining, God has sent poisonous snakes among them to bite them and kill them. And, and then he says to Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and lift it up. And so if anybody looks upon the serpent, the bronze serpent, they won't die. And if you're a good Sunday school graduate, you go, whoa, wait a minute. There's something wrong here. Didn't you just forbid idolatry? Didn't you just say no to graven images? Didn't you just say, that's wrong, that's bad, don't do that? Well, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. In that, the serpent, there's no power in the bronze serpent. The, the, the power that's being released is in obedience and faith. Do this thing and you will live. Have faith in me and my provision for you and you will live. There's no power in the bronze serpent. But it was a stumbling block to many of them in the same way that Jesus on the cross was a stumbling block to many Jews, right? And so he's giving this foreshadowing in Numbers 21, Jesus being lifted up in the same way such that people who are dying in their sins might look in faith in obedience to God and be saved or delivered from death. And so the bronze serpent, again, it had no power in itself. It was simply obedience to the command to look in faith. It's believing God and taking him at his word that invited God's grace into that moment. And so just like Jesus, that serpent on the pole was a difficult thing to accept 
Salvation in both instances did not look like what people thought it would look like or thought it should look like. So that's verse 13. Look at 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus was marred beyond recognition the scourging that happened before the crucifixion. We won't get into the details of uh, the whip. They would, they would weave shards of bone and metal and, and um, hard objects into the leather strap so that as the whip hit the body, the hard pieces of rock or marble would cause contusions. They would cause bruising and the blood would begin to pool and then the metal and the jagged pieces would drag across the flesh just slicing the victim open. It was this horrible, horrible torture. Most people didn't survive the scourging to get to the cross. And yet Jesus carried his cross out of the city. So the text seems to indicate to us he's barely recognizable as human. I heard one pastor say one time, I don't know if this is true or not, but I I thought it was interesting to think about. He says, the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars that Jesus still bears. That's interesting. Verse 15 so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So, so thus or so, it's, it's by this sacrifice, he will sprinkle. And sprinkle speaks of the Old Testament offerings and the sprinkling of blood over the sacrificial offering onto the person or the thing that was being made clean or atoned for, right? You, sprinkling, you sprinkled on, it was prescribed. And so the sprinkling of that blood of that sacrificial animal was sufficient to cleanse whatever was being cleansed temporarily, The New Testament goes farther than that and says that we're actually covered in the blood of Jesus, which is to say that there's actually no part of our lives that his redemption doesn't touch, right? We're not just sprinkled with the blood, we're covered in the blood. Now, you couldn't do that in the Old Testament system. You couldn't be like, all right, you stand right there. Here's a big vat. We're just gonna dump all this bull blood right on you, right? Okay, you're good, go, right? There's no functionality in society when you're like bathed in bull blood, okay? It doesn't work. So the sprinkling, right? He will sprinkle many nations. And we saw that last week in Psalm 22. So the offer of salvation will be worldwide. It won't be relegated just to Israel. Now transition into chapter 53, verse one. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now this verse, this is one of those places where the chapter breaks and headings in the numbering system really don't help us. Because verse one of 53 really belongs with the end of chapter 52. So the context is these other nations and even their kings and rulers will believe in this salvific act even when Israel as a nation is not believing in this salvific act. And so Isaiah is asking the rhetorical question. He's astounded. Like, who's going to believe what they've heard from us? The nations will believe. The pagans will believe. Israel's not going to believe. And this goes back to the parables. And the series we did, the reason for Jesus using the parables was judicial hardening, which is an act on the part of God to let someone go their own way after they've begun to harden their own heart in rejection of him and his word. You want to go back to Exodus and look at Pharaoh. There are five 
mentions of hardening and they're all attributed to Pharaoh before it ever gets to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so uh, in that first Passover, this is, this is God's way of accomplishing a redemptive purpose to bring about the Passover and to deliver them from Egypt and from Pharaoh and, and at the cross to deliver humanity from sin because Jesus is the second Passover. He's the full Passover. That was just a a run-up. That was just a foreshadowing in Exodus. This is the real thing. Jesus is the Passover lamb, Paul would say. Interestingly, at that second Passover, Jesus is the lamb, but Satan is not the character represented that corresponds to Pharaoh. Actually, national Israel is, as represented by their religious leaders who are hardened by God and who want to kill the lamb. They want to kill the son. Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young tender plant, a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Would you just think about that? Nothing attractive about Jesus from a worldly perspective. And we're not talking about post-crucifixion. We're not talking about after he's been scourged. We're just talking about him as a person. There was nothing about him that was attractive from a worldly perspective. And I, I just got to tell you guys, I am so tired of seeing pastors and churches make every effort to catch cultural icons and bring them into the church so as to generate buzz and seem like we're the cool people. And if you come here, you'd be part of the cool in crowd because we're the in church. And we got, we got this celebrity here, right? Come to our church because this celebrity goes here. Come to this church because we've got these celebrities here. I was just having uh, lunch with a pastor friend a couple of weeks ago in another church in the region, and they have several former NFL players in their church. And I love the fact that none of those guys want to be celebrated or known for that. They just want to be in the church. They just want to participate in ministry and love people and, and be part of the body of Christ. And they don't want people seeking them out after the service going, can I get your autograph? They just want to be part of the body of Christ. I love that. I love that. And I love the heart of their pastor who's like, yeah, we don't, we're not going to use these NFL players as sermon examples all the time and celebrate their sports career. We just want them to be here and be part of the body. Like, but if you're wondering who some of these people are, these cool church guys, um, just go, some of these guys go on TV shows, right? And then they'll, they're asked tough questions about the gospel and the outworking of the gospel in society. And then what they'll do is they'll balk at that. And they'll poo-poo their answer and they'll, talk, they'll downgrade sin and the things that God hates in order not to offend people. Say, so, well, I don't know, man. I just don't want to offend anybody. I don't think God wants to, he's not in the business of offending people. He just wants us to love everybody. And when you hear that kind of answer from a pastor on television, these are the people that I'm talking about, okay? And they end up making the church look ridiculous in the eyes of the watching world because they don't preach the gospel. They don't preach the gospel. They're, they're trying to be attractive to the world and what scripture says is Jesus wasn't attractive to the world and when we're like Jesus, we won't be attractive to the world, right? We're just not gonna think that we're the cool kids. It's just not gonna happen. When churches vie for, endeavor for, labor for the world's acceptance, they will always end up rejecting God's revealed truth. Like, Embrace that reality. When a church makes a decision that what we want, the goal, the end game is acceptance from the world, there will always be a compromise of God's revealed truth. Always. Because an embrace of God's revealed truth will never gain you acceptance from the world. And the simple reason is you cannot have two authorities occupying the same space. 
You just can't. You can't serve two masters, Jesus would say. One always wins over the other one. When it comes to serving God and serving the world system, it doesn't take long to see the true colors of the religious leaders of our day. Just pay close attention to how much they go to scripture as their authority when they're being interviewed. And then how much they actually try to soften God's law and soften sin and downplay the severity of sin when they're, when they're on TV. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, James says. Like those are James's words, by the spirit of God. Acceptance culturally, having the right image parading around like cultural icons and pop stars does not a church make. How many of you guys grew up watching Rankin and Bass Christmas claymation specials at your house? Some of you know that this. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, all the stop motion claymation. You remember the, like some of you are like, yeah, my parents bought those DVDs. I'm like, yeah, I remember when I had to get up and turn the UHF dial and the VHF dial and, it, and you had to look at the TV guide to see what night and what time that show was gonna be on, right? You're like, what? Well, you can just like stream Netflix, what? Right? It's like, no, you had to, you had to plan around the, the Christmas specials. And, I, and remember that, that, that particular one where Rudolph you know, is ostracized because of his red nose. And there's that one crazy elf that wanted to be a dentist. And, and, and then they end up, where do they end up? The island of misfit toys. That's right. I'm so happy that so many of you know this. Uh, they end up at the island of misfit toys. We are the island of misfit toys. I just pull the plug on the whole deal right now. Take the wind right out of our sails. Well, this is the island of misfit toys. The church of Jesus Christ is the island of misfit toys. In contrast, you know, you, you, you can find a cool church to go to. You, you, could, you could drive 45 minutes to find a big mega church that's on TV and, and not get the gospel. But the church is the island of misfit toys. I, I, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. I, I want to I put a... Put a sticky note right there in your brain and come back. We're going to come back to this. Let's finish the text. Verse three, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Esteem means to hold something with high regard as being something of value. And Isaiah is saying that humanity has looked upon the perfect, sinless son of God in the midst of his substitutionary sacrifice and said, yeah, I don't really think that's worth that much at all. I don't really think that's very valuable to me at all. The audacity of creation, humankind created in the image of God to look at the sacrifice of God's son and say, I don't esteem that very much. Is it any wonder Jesus would be referred to as a man of sorrows and one familiar with grief? I mean, he's come with a heart of love to die an intercessory death for mankind and then the, and the mankind goes, yeah, I just don't think that's very valuable. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> this is a doctrine called penal substitutionary atonement. I want to take a minute to unpack this. Penal, like our penal system, is processing criminals and evildoers, right, for their sins and their crimes and then sentencing them to pay for those wrongdoings. That's, that's what we call our penal system, right? Penitentiary, we get the same word. Uh, so this is first and foremost to do with justice and then substitutionary because Jesus is taking my place. Jesus is taking your place on the cross. The life that you've lived deserves death and the life that he lived did not. So he gave his perfectly lived life for you and me and in our place, he died the death that we deserve. That's substitution. And then atonement. You could break that word up into three, uh, three, three breaks, at one mint. To be at one with God by his atonement, right? So penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement means to cover. And in covering that debt, we have a debt of sin we could never pay back, to pay it so that it's all gone. Not just to pay it so that you could get through the month and rack up more interest next month. Some of you are feeling conviction right now about your credit card debt, right? Not just, right, that's, that's what happens. Like your, your kid comes to you and you go, man, I spent too much money this month. Can you spot me? Can you loan me? I just need to pay the credit card. And, and then, yes, but then next month, same thing happens, right? You rack up more debt. But imagine you got adopted into like Jeff Bezos's family and he's like, no, I'll just pay the whole thing. We're done. You never have to want for anything again. You'll never go into debt for anything again. I paid it all. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Except we're not talking about finances. We're talking about your sin. We're talking about your sin. To cover over the debt so that it's totally paid for, totally gone. And so the Old Testament atonement sacrifices were only temporary debt payments. It's like paying the minimum on your 24.5% interest credit card, right? Just going to pay that. this month and eventually I'll pay it off. It's like, no, you won't. You're not even paying a fraction of the interest you accumulated over the month, right? This is adding up. It's adding up. You'll never pay it off. And and the credit card companies, no, that's the way it's designed to be. You can't pay it off on the minimum payment. And that's the point of the Old Testament system. It was never going to be enough. It was never sufficient. It was meant to point us to Jesus. Jesus stepped in with all the capital in the universe and paid down your debt completely before the bill collector showed up. He covered you. He covered you. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the son of God modeling for us what submission to the Holy Spirit looks like as a child of God. Jesus is suppressing what he might otherwise rightly and justly say in the face of his accusers and torturers. He has every right to say something to them as the son of God. And yet he chooses not to. He's silent in the face of affliction. How that we cannot, as a society in our day, silence our mouths from the constant expression of every thought and every emotion and every reaction that we have all day long. Can we just make this applicable for a minute? Can we just get personal about the application of verse seven? You do not, I mean, there's a blanket you. Holy Spirit, apply it to whoever you need to. Say everything 
that comes into your brain. You do not need to express every thought that comes into your brain. There, there will be times, I had one of these this week with an angry neighbor that I had to choose by the power of the spirit to not say some things that I think I would have been okay saying that would have been bad things. There's times when you say, you gotta suppress that. You've got to grab a hold of those words before they leave your mouth and stuff them back down inside you by the power of God and, and just be quiet. And that is something our, I mean, you just think about our culture, right? Would that those who call themselves followers of Jesus develop a sense of propriety and self-control by the power of the spirit in the age of, look at me, I've got something to say, right? It's like, stop, stop. I've been watching a guy this week talk about this. He'll remain unnamed, but I appreciate what he said about um, college students in general, like 20-somethings who demonstrate, they're like, um, you know, think that they have a political message. He's like, clean your room. Seriously, like learn to clean your room, make your bed because your room is a microcosm of the world. And if you've not learned to steward this little thing, I don't care what you have to say about the big thing. You don't understand even all the cogs and processes and parts of how the big system works, but you want to fix it by holding up placards? Like go clean your room. Like just get that in order. Like learn how to do this thing first and then maybe there'll be respect for what you have to say because you've learned to steward the, the little thing that God's already given you to do. Like that's, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. Perhaps the watching world would take note of something being very different about us if we learned restraint in the spirit. Or maybe they just steam, continue to steamroll over the church. I don't know. I, I don't know. There's an agenda, but um, he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. Some of you need to just turn the page in your journal and be like, he opened not his mouth and like, don't write anything else the rest of the morning. Just like, leave that. That's, that's, that's from the spirit. Verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. When a mortal, that's me and you, gives up his or her life, they are only sacrificing a few years on this earth. I mean, you understand, like 10 out of 10 people die. Like you and I are part of the ultimate statistic. So when a person steps into a situation where there's a a military personnel that that throws himself on a grenade to save his comrades with whatever the situation is, when a person chooses to die for other people, they're only sacrificing years. They're, They're dying sooner than they would have. But Jesus did not simply choose to die sooner. He was the eternal son of God. He chose between dying and not dying. That's huge. That's huge. The voluntary suffering and death of Jesus Christ surpasses all human thought and imagination and goes beyond all other human experience. He wasn't just moving the death date up. He was choosing to engage death at all for our sakes. And so they made his grave, verse 9, with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And in fulfillment of this prophecy, Joseph of Arimathea allowed Jesus to be buried in his newly purchased tomb, totally unused previously, brand new, had just been hewn out of rock and nobody had ever been in there. And so this phrase, his grave was with the wicked in his death is a way of saying that even the sinless, perfect son of God ends up dead like every other sinner on the planet. And that seems unjust. That appears to be uh, an unjust reality, right? Why, why would that happen? Why would the perfect, sinless son of God end up dead like every other sinner? 
Verse 10, here's why. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I want you to note the clarity and deliberateness of this act. Also, be careful here that you don't read that God delighted in the act of killing the son. Okay? Don't read that. Scripture is abundantly clear. God does not delight even in the death of the wicked. Why would God delight in the death and the act of seeing his perfect sinless son put to death? It's not a delight in the act of killing the son. It's a delight in what's coming about as a result of the son dying. That there's redemption now. There's salvation now for humankind. That's the delight. And so now the scripture says he does have offspring, spiritual offspring Jesus has. He does have offspring, whereas he didn't before. Now he will prolong his days. Now he will live forever, having defeated death. Verse 11, so out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That means Jesus is going to justify many. This is a forensic judicial declaration that anybody who has faith in Jesus is declared righteous before God. And in that declaration, if you've come to Christ in faith and said, I need to be forgiven of my sins, you have been justified. And then that declaration from God opens the doors for you to be sanctified, which is just the, the word we used to talk about. You're now becoming holy like God is holy. He's working that into you. If you ever made homemade bread, you take the yeast and you put it in, you start to work it into the lump of dough. That's, that's kind of the picture of holiness. And sometimes it's really awesome and God does some things in your life. You go, man, I just, I love what God's doing in my life. I feel so much different than I did 10 years ago. I'm so grateful for his sanctification. And some days you go, oh, this is painful. You like that lump of dough and sometimes you just, mm, just pound it in there, right? It's just like, this is painful. But it's always God working holiness and righteousness into our lives. And then someday we'll be glorified that righteousness and holiness will be perfected in us spiritually and physically and in every way conceivable and we'll be with him. Therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul even unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the strangers. So let me take that phrase, bore the sins of many. I'm gonna clarify uh, some doctrine here. A good Bible dictionary will tell you that that word in Hebrew for many is a euphemism for all. I said, man, that sounds like sleight of hand, Sadie. I'm not sure. How do you, what are you doing? Just get, get you a good Bible dictionary. You'll see Jesus' we'll come back to this. Jesus' death as our substitution was universal, not limited. Did I just go rob Bell? Uh-oh. Sadie getting crazy? So, so we'll unpack this at a later date, but I'll just give you the snapshot. When we talk about the atonement, we talk about what is God's intent, his intention. We talk about intent, extent, application. There are three facets of this. Okay, what was God's intent in sending Jesus to atone for the sins of mankind? What's the extent? And then what's the application? Well, the intent is really dictated by the extent, so let's answer that first. The extent, was the extent of the atonement limited? Well, then Jesus didn't die for the sins of the whole world. If you say the extent of the atonement is limited, then Jesus didn't die for the sins of the whole world. But John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever should believe in him, right? First John 2, 2, uh, we, we, there are probably a dozen verses that talk about the atonement. That he, he didn't just die for some. So the extent, we talk about the extent is unlimited. Jesus died for the sins of all humanity. So no, that's, where, that's where it feels wrong, Sadie. That's where it feels like, you say, Jesus died for every person, then every person's saved and everybody goes to heaven. So no, 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 because we haven't talked about the application yet. Like the extent of the atonement is, is, is everybody, but the application of the atonement, it, we're only answering that one question. The, the application is you have to put your faith in Jesus and then the atonement's applied to you. That's limited. That's limited. Every good, orthodox, right-believing Christian would say the atonement is limited in the application. Otherwise, everybody's saved, whether they want to be or not. You don't even have to do anything. Just go to heaven. It's cool, right? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. So regarding the question of application, we believe in a limited atonement. But when it comes to the extent, that's unlimited. Now, if you're scratching your head right now, you go, man, I just, I, I don't know. You just, yeah, I'm more confused than when you started that segment. You and me, coffee this week, OAC reopened, having some coffee We'll talk about this, but also know that after Easter, we start our First John series. There are at least two places in First John where we're going to really go after this doctrine pretty hard. So it's coming. There's more coming, okay? So hang in there. Hang in there. Or shoot me a text and let's get coffee because I'm always down with coffee. When we go back to the Old Testament, it is an obvious fact of reality that without the atonement, without that sacrifice and the blood being shed, Men and women could not enter into God's presence. It's just, it's all over every page. You can't escape the reality. No propitiation, no atonement, no access, right? Exodus 12, verses five and six, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male lamb, a year old, you may take it from sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. This is the Passover. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. Right, so, so again, you're killing an animal, you're shedding the blood. First Peter 1, Peter says in verse 17, and if you call on him as father, the one who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile because you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, you weren't ransomed with perishable things like silver and gold. Those things fade. They, they rust. They go away. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, so the blood is the access, the shedding of blood. Uh, I won't read you. I won't bore you with the Levitical texts. There are about 18 of them. But in Leviticus, it's very clear that the victim of the sacrifice in those Old Testament rituals is always a vicarious substitute. It's taking the place of the person so that the sins are, are being imputed to the sacrifice and removed from the person temporarily. So that means the animal is a stand-in for the person who deserves to die. Right? So in the sacrifice, the sin's transferred onto the animal, which pays with its life and is buying time for the human since the animal blood could never fully pay for human sins. It was temporary, right? All of it was designed to teach the holiness and righteousness of God. All of it designed to show us the sinfulness of man and the guilt of sin. And above all else, God's desire to forgive, but solely on the basis of undeserved grace made available through the death of an innocent victim. The whole Old Testament system it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the cross. So don't miss that Jesus was, was that life, right? And his life, while amazing and good, 
and there are a lot of good examples of Jesus in the text of the Gospels, was never the full reason. The crucifixion was the end game, the main purpose for coming at all. We can't lose sight of that. His death is the reason for his birth. The mission was always to die. And this is what's leading us to Easter morning. This is the buildup to Easter, right? This, this, John uh, 3 tells us the chief motive of the atonement was the love of God. Some, some skeptics and some not so great theologians have asked down through the past 2,000 years, but isn't this, isn't this idea of substitutionary atonement immoral? Isn't that wrong? Isn't the idea of Jesus, the perfect one, suffering for us morally reprehensible? The innocent suffering for nothing that they've done? Isn't that somehow wrong? You know, we, we mortals choose that all the time, don't we? Parents. We don't even have to think about it a lot. If you're a parent, chances are really high. You've chosen multiple times to suffer in the place of one of your children. We do this all the time for people we love. Is Christ less than us? Is our guilt being transferred onto him immoral? Is it unjust and therefore wrong for Jesus to suffer and be punished for our sins? Is God the cosmic child abuser? No, of course not. I mean, if in your mind you've got like a bazillion trillion years ago, like the Trinity's gathered to talk about this and Jesus is just a little tiny baby. He's like, oh, little baby, we're going to sacrifice you. And then, yeah, that, that, well, first of all, your theology is really whacked out anyway. But like, yeah, like if you take a little baby, and you say, okay, I'm going to kill the baby now so that you can be free. That's, that's a different scenario. But Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's, he's fully God, right? So that's not how this works. And this is the second person of the, of the Godhead. He's always been. This was already the plan. There was never a time when Jesus was not in full agreement that he would go to the cross and be the substitution for mankind. So is, it, is the atonement immoral? No, it's not. Because if it is, then love is immoral. Because this is precisely what love does. It chooses to give itself up for the object of its love. That's our definition of love. If we go through the uh, Foundation of the Garden series together as a church at some point, you will learn. Love is a choice. It's an act of the will. It's not an emotion. The emotions are great. Love the emotions when they're there. You get married for a few years, you find out they're not always there. When they're there, I tell Jen all the time, I really like you. And sometimes I'm like, I really don't like you. But we don't talk about whether we love each other or not because we always do. We always love each other. It's a foregone conclusion. We love each other even though we don't always like each other. We choose that. We choose to love each other. We choose it. So let's just bring it back to where we started. Bring it back to where we started to Rudolph and his red nose and elves who want to be dentists and islands of misfit toys. Rankin and Bass Christmas claymations. I mean, you know, well, so Paul would say it this way. Let me just read you a text of scripture because Paul says it better than I would say it. If you don't believe me that we're the island of misfit toys, scripture says that we are. And, and this is, I've always, you know, some of you have been around me for years. You go, here he goes. Here he's going to 1 Corinthians 1. I know this passage. This is the last kid picked for kickball passage, right? Yes, it is. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So then Paul asked the question rhetorically, he says, so who is the one that's wise? 
Where's the scribe or the learned one? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, through worldly wisdom, it pleased God through foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. He said, I'm just going to turn the whole thing up, upside down. You guys think you got it figured out. So we came from nothing. We, we evolved from primordial ooze. Okay, you could, go ahead. That's, that's, I'm, I'm going to flip it, right? I'm going to flip it. And so Jews look for signs. They want to see the miraculous. And the Greeks want wisdom. But what we preach is Christ crucified. And it's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's total foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, is, is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is so much wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is infinitely stronger than man's strength. He says, I want you to just go back and think about your calling, brothers. I want you to go back and think about when you first came to Christ. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Just, let me kind of translate that into modern day 21st century American English. Not many of you were C-plus students. You're like hanging around the D.C. average right there, okay? Not many of you are doing great academically when you came to Christ. He said, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were powerful. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not, so as to bring about the things that are, so that no human can boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in how awesome and smart they are. That's not what the text says. Let the one who boasts, boast in how much they deserve God's love. It's not what the text says either. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in his grace, his goodness, his love for us. Because we're not the cool kids. We're the island of misfit toys. The thing that binds our hearts together is not even our dysfunction, although we put the fun back in dysfunction at Emmaus Road. It's Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus shed for us, covering our sins that binds us together in commonality so that we have community, so that we're a faith family. And I love what we do on Sundays. It's great. I want to see this room. I want to move the curtain back another 30 feet, and I want to see the room full of people. But this is just one expression of faith family. Life change happens around the dinner table and on the sofa in the living room. And so life groups, is, like, that's the big deal for us. Like, that's where people grow. That's where people grow in relationship to each other. I want to I go back to The Greatest Showman as we wrap up. I was looking, I was looking for YouTube. Like, the, it hasn't come out yet on Blu-ray, so I can't get it. But I'm looking for YouTube clips. And I, I found the lyrics of my favorite song in the, in the movie. I, when I watched it, I don't even like admitting this. I'm a crier at movies. I'm a big softy. I mean, you guys that come over and I've got my swords in my office, my AR-15, the coyote comes in the yard and I'm like running out in the backyard with the AR-15, you know, it's like, dude. That... And then I go to a movie and I'm like, 
you know, I'm just weeping and I'm melting into a blob of. Uh, um, th- this particular song, Barnum has lost his way. He's gotten caught up in the fame and the pursuit of fame, and he's he's missed the fact that what he's actually done is not uh, made a name for himself as much as he's created a home for people who didn't have a home. And he's created a community for people who are oddities and outcasts and misfits. And in this moment of realization, he sings this song and he says, I drank champagne with kings and queens. Politicians praise my name. Those are someone else's dreams, the pitfalls of the man that I became. For years and years, I chased their cheers, the crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember what all this was for. He says, from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. And from now on, what's waited till tomorrow, what's been put off, it starts tonight. So let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart. From now on, from now on. And then, it's powerful. All All the circus performers, all the misfits and the oddities are there with him and they begin to sing this phrase, and we will come back home. <laughs> She's dancing on the front row. It's such a good song. If you, you just go Google it later. Just go YouTube this. And we will come back home, and we will come back home once again. Home again, home again. This place of home, this idea of home and belonging in community. Such an important piece of the atonement. It's not... I won't say that. I would say it's not the main thrust of the atonement, but in one sense it is because God is redeeming for himself a people, a community of people who will forever be a family with him, united with him. Remember, there's nothing attractive from a worldly perspective about Jesus, according to the text. And as Jesus was in the world, so are we. So are we. So embrace it. (laughs) Be weird. Be a little dysfunctional. But do it together. Let's do this together. Let's love each other. Invest yourself in community. Invest yourself in the lives of other people at Emmaus Road. That's what we have here. That's why it's so important. Welcome. Welcome to the island of misfit toys. Jesus, would you take this in our hearts from this place and into our lives, and into our week, and into our moments. You know how to best apply it. You know where you want to take us this week, and in relationship with people, how you want this to manifest. Lord, would you be gracious to do all those things that we can't do in the power of our flesh. We yield to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.